Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Nando De Freitas. Nando is a team lead and principal scientist at DeepMind, uh, as well as a fellow of the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, or CIFAR, as you might know it. Nando, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here. It's such a pleasure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's great to finally get a chance to speak with you. I know we've been trying to coordinate something for a while now, uh, but fortunately, NURPS brings us all together. I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and your path into ML and AI. Yeah, so I got into ML and AI a very long time ago. <laughs> We're going back to prehistoric times here. So actually, it was around, it was in 1994. When I was an undergrad at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa, and a professor, my control professor, introduced me to this thing called neural networks. And um, I was fascinated by neural networks and, what, and tried to learn as much about them as possible, Cohonan maps, backpropagation, and ended up implementing something that eventually went into hardware and it became a controller for uh, pneumatic uh, control valves and with that work I eventually even made it to an international conference that was I still remember a 26-hour trip from uh, <laughs> from my home to uh, my first conference in Washington it was extremely intimidating because I was this kid from Africa and there I was meeting all these big shots and um, people that I thought I would never be able to ever hang out with. They were like heroes to me. Um, some folks like David Heckerman, Andrew Barto, and, and a few others, like very prominent people in the field. Um, it was a great experience. It was intimidating. And when I went back to South Africa, that made me want to do a master's. And so I continued my work. Uh, with neural networks and eventually through that I was able to apply to universities and um, I got lucky, I got a scholarship to Cambridge and I went there and I continued working on Bayesian neural networks and that was my PhD. Um, and it became very statistical, ended up going to Berkeley and by just fluke um, my supervisor there, Stuart Russell, was in computer science, so I somehow became a computer scientist. <laughs> and uh, eventually, after two years there, I moved to UBC, where I was a professor of machine learning, introducing some of the undergrad courses that you probably have seen on YouTube. That, uh, and it was there that I first uh, started participating in the CIFR um, program. Um, and this was organized chiefly by Professor Jeff Hinton, and the goal back then was to understand the brain. Mm. And this was so amazing because um, it was suicide in those days to put a grant <laughs> with that title. <laughs> um, you would not get tenure. This was like a crazy thing to do. But fortunately, um, some of the key leaders in Canada um, believed in that ambitious vision um, they're still there and they continue inspiring us um, and, um, and that's what we did. We embraced that vision. Our research sort of steered toward 
um, that uh, at the time more diff- would seem more, more difficult path, even mm. though now it seems it's very easy in retrospect what we do. Yeah, and that's kind of how I got into deep learning and how I got here. Have you since returned to applications uh, in control systems? Uh, yeah, I continue doing a lot of that. Okay. So a lot of the knowledge that I gained from my undergrad um, in my master's in control, uh, mm-hmm. things about um, certainly all the mathematical thinking about the differential equations, knowing how to sort of map things of frequency domain and so mm-hmm. on. But as well as being able to do things like PID controllers. Right, uh, right. Uh, th- those are still the things that we use today. Like when we try to control robots and we, we might use uh, neural networks these days to sort of set up parameters automatically of mm-hmm. different PID controllers. But, you know, all that background has been very useful. Uh, yeah, those so. are some of my favorite courses from grad school, PID controllers and hysteresis and all these different yes. uh, control theory <laughs> Uh, things. Um, but I've had the impression that that stuff is, you know, works so well and there's such a need for a more deterministic response for a lot of the applications of this that there hasn't been uh, much in terms of uh, neural network applications for that. But it sounds like you've been doing that for a while. Yes. No, there's, there's quite a few people that work with it. So, um, um, so, Control and the sort of combination of classical control techniques with the new uh, sort of the reinforcement learning uh, techniques. Um, yeah, it's actually a very fruitful area of research. And I think a lot of the work that folks like Peter Abiel at Berkeley do, mm-hmm. like Michael van der Pan at UBC, Ima Todorov at the University of Washington, um, it all sort of involves a sort of a bit of a marriage between the classical techniques and and the new techniques. And I think there's still a lot we can learn from classical control as well in terms of robustness and constraints. Mm -hmm. Um, Because as we build controllers, we want to make sure that they're safe, that we can verify them and so on. So these these continue being um, challenges that we have to address in order to deploy the technology. Mm. So tell me a little bit about your research interests. What are, it sounds like you kind of dabble in a lot of different things, but how do you kind of characterize the general scope and direction of your research? Um, I think fundamentally, it's still the same that it's always been. It's trying to understand the brain, Mm. trying to understand, understand what it is to be me, what it is for you to be you and for us to be engaged in this discussion mm-hmm. um, that's the real goal and and of course we we have to sort of break this problem in order to be able to attack it we we have to think of like what question how to formulate the question and often that's what leads to things like rl you know you can specify tasks and cost functions so mm-hmm. it's a language to talk about the problem we can sort of think of it in terms of cognitive abilities that we have like memory or imagination um, curiosity and so on um, so there's many ways to attack the problem of understanding the brain um, and, and I think this is a huge problem and there's so much yet to be done mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've picked a few directions um, I see my colleagues have picked other directions and and I think it's gonna involve um, many perspectives for us to eventually come up with uh, um, an understanding at, at many levels of abstraction of, of what it is um, 
in a sense, to be human. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you think that the our understanding of the brain has benefited our uh, understanding of machine learning or the practice of machine learning more or less than uh, machine learning has benefited our understanding of the brain? That's an interesting question. So, so it is very clear that the understanding of the brain has helped us uh, build a uh, get here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I a couple of years, uh, actually four years ago, I went to Japan and I had the honor of meeting Professor Fukushima, who is who was the author of the Neocognitron, which is essentially the convolutional neural network architecture that uh, we all use these days. Mm. Um, Jan Kuhn added backpropagation to that architecture and that kind of is what brought us here. That was a success story and vision and so on. Mm -hmm. When I spoke to Professor Kitagawa, um, he mentioned that what inspired him to do that work was uh, the work of Hubel and Wiesel uh, in neuroscience. Mm. And when he worked at this institute, I forget the name of the institute, but they, um, they... put neuroscientists and computer scientists together. Mm -hmm. And it was through this uh, combination of different disciplines um, working together that he found out about these results in neuroscience and decided to code this model. So I think neuroscience has has played a huge role. Um, I'm told that Sepp Reiter was also uh, influenced by... Uh, cortical models uh, of cells and so on in, in order to propose LSTMs, which is also one of the key components of machine learning. Mm-hmm. Um, has it helped the other way around? That's a much harder question. Um, I mean, clearly with the success of backpropagation and so on, a few researchers at MIT, for example, um, they went on and they were starting to use that new knowledge to explain what how the visual cortex might be working. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so on. Um, I also think more recently, uh, folks are starting to, like Conrad Cording and so on, um, trying to look at uh, the research that has happened, not just in machine learning, but still the combination of statistics and econometrics and machine learning um, and biostatistics, looking at things like uh, causal modeling in order to go back and try to understand um, uh, to try to formulate a theory of how it is that we should approach neuroscience and mm-hmm. what sort of findings we're looking for. So I think to some extent it also has panned out the other way. Yesterday at the poster sessions, I was uh, checking out one of the posters that was making kind of a strong correlation between what's happening in the brain and image processing and CNNs. And I'd always thought of neural networks in general and CNNs is kind of quote unquote inspired by the brain, but not really, you know, exhibiting a very strong correlation, but they were, you know, talking about layers as like V1, V2, V4, whatever, and IT, which presumably are, uh, relate to a model of how we think the uh, visual information is processed Mm -hmm. in the brain. I didn't realize that there was that strong a correlation between these two fields. Yeah, that, that appears to be. Certainly, certainly. Um, for example, at CIFR, uh, so every year before uh, NeurIPS, there's another workshop that takes place. It's a two-day workshop called uh, the CIFR meeting. And actually, I just came from, from it. 
Um, there we always have a combination. Uh, we invite people working in neuroscience um, as well as people working in computer science, engineering, physics and so on. People from different areas, from uh, causality, um, etc. Mm-hmm. And we try to sort of use everyone's insights to, you know, to sort of advance what we're... Um, mainly to choose what research areas to explore next. Okay. So I think neuroscience has always informed what we do um, in machine learning, and machine learning, I think, also informed neuroscience. So certainly, at, at least at, at that meeting, that's the case. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the driving motivation is to try to understand the brain, so that kind of reverse part of the feedback loop. And one of the recent areas that you've been exploring to... Uh, help get there is been imitation learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, you uh, are a contributor to a paper here that's focused on third-party imitation learning. Correct. Let's just dive in. Tell us about that uh, that paper. What's the motivation there? Okay, so, um, so I'm excited about imitation because imitation is something that we all do. A lot of the things we learn um, uh, are through a process of imitation. Um, and in particular, I'm interested in a form of imitation um, uh, called few-shot imitation, okay. um, which is sort of follows from, uh, you can sort of think of it in terms of um, meta-learning. So mm-hmm. uh, the idea of meta-learning is evolution is a learning process that happens at a very slow scale, and it produces biological machines, you know, us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, machines that are capable of learning very rapidly with very few data. We don't experience that much data throughout our lifetimes. Um, and so uh, we kind of want to do the same thing. We want to, to sort of learn machines that can imitate very rapidly. That um, um, So we train them through a very expensive process, but then we can deploy this machine and someone can show demonstrate something to this machine and then the machine is able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, then comes an, uh, another question uh, of when you demonstrate, your demonstration might be with uh, different objects, so different hands. And so you need to now deal with um, the third person here. Uh, what we mean by that is that you might have learned to do the task um, using, I don't know, a robot hands. And now you have to watch human hands doing the task and and then you have to uh, the robot has to imitate Mm. so very much like when children can imitate a dog by using their foot to scratch behind their ear and right um, and they're able to remap from one type of body to another body quite easily and the the Um, contrast is i guess first person imitation learning which is uh for example you know, you're looking at the actions that uh, someone is playing in, in playing a game and learning based on those actions as opposed to just watching them, quote unquote, from a distance. Correct. Right. Um, so, so you, uh, the, the, uh, precisely. So in first person in Atari, for example, if you're playing Atari, first person, you would be collect data from playing the game in Atari. You would try to fit a model um, to it. In third person, uh, what we do is we actually go to YouTube and we look at people playing the games. Mm. And it's third person because there's a bit of, dom- there's a domain gap, you know. In YouTube, sometimes this video is, well, the video will definitely be of a different resolution, different color, it will have ads inserted, it will, <laughs> you know, it has all sorts of other artifacts. 
Mm-hmm. And so we need to use, uh, be able to remap from that thing in YouTube to um, our domain so that we can play, uh, play the game. And inspiration for this for me was like watching a child, actually my nephew, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, spending a lot of time uh, lo- uh, playing, um, oh, what's that thing that kids play? Um, um, Minecraft? Or Minecraft, okay. yes. <laughs> so he spent a lot of time watching Minecraft and I remember mm-hmm. telling my brother, you're not worried about this. And my brother's like, oh no, he's, <laughs> this is actually very good. He does really well in school when he does this sort of thing. And okay. what he does is um, he watches these videos and then he goes and plays. Uh, yeah. And so I realized, well, that makes sense. This is what we should do. Right. And so then I, uh, you know, I work with these v- very gifted uh, scientists and engineers who took the idea and went and I- implemented this for in the context of Atari. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is sort of an initial step, which is more than anything, just a demo of, of what could be done. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of footage in YouTube for all sorts of things. And so the hope would be that we eventually could train, um, say, robot manipulators or um, in simulation or with real robots to be able to uh, watch YouTube and be able to, even though there's a domain gap because, it, you know, it's, they're watching different human hands, <laughs> say, tying knots, mm-hmm. and then they would have to then tie knots themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not actually easy. Uh, like tying shoelaces, for example, is something mm-hmm. that even six-year-old humans struggle. Interesting. I, I think I've come across videos that, uh, or examples of um, research that is trying to do some of that kind of thing, but not with actual instantiated robots, but like uh, animation. So um, like yes. watch a video of dancing and try to, to get the stick figure to dance or things like that. It seems like there are a lot of parallel activities kind of going after the same type of problem. Uh, correct. So a lot of this can be done in simulation and, and in a sense it's it's easier to do it in simulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, robots are basically machines. They're complicated. Yeah. It's like, right. and, and they're not produced by a typically a, a man. They're like cars, except that with cars, we have these big companies that produce these nicely engineered machines. Right. And robots are more like cars when they started appearing in the world, you know, they're sort of <laughs> makeshift uh, Frankenstein type uh, things put together. Um, and so they break down a lot of the time. It's very hard to do robotics. Mm-hmm. Um, the software is uh, somewhat lagging mm-hmm. and so on. But nonetheless, it's interesting. Uh, manufacturing keeps being one of the automation in manufacturing keeps being one of the driving forces behind, you know, control theory, in mm-hmm. fact, and control and machine learning. Mm-hmm. And so is, has your work in this area um, with playing the Atari games, have you... Is that also still in simulation or do you have some robotic thing playing the game? So, so that's in simulation, okay. but we, we have been doing other works, uh, okay. also doing imitation and in particular doing this few shot imitation mm-hmm. where we do, uh, we use simulation. So a physics uh, accurate simulation through an engine called Mojoko. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of what OpenAI GM uses. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also use um, uh, real robots to do these sort of things. And so mm-hmm. we've been very interested in this sort of uh, few shot imitation, uh, which is basically imitation with a few data. 
-hmm. The challenge here is, and the challenge uh, being the challenge of what I call few-shot meta-learning, um, is to get a machine um, and being able to sort of demonstrate something new to the machine with novel objects, with novel motion, and have the machine be able to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So if you think of... Um, so. Um, I want to go beyond building machines that are um, like classifiers, like a right. CNN, or and instead uh, they're learning machines. They're machines that I can give to someone at the factory, and that person can then modify the machine via demonstration mm -hmm. or via some formal language or natural language, and get the machine to do something new or do it mm -hmm. slightly different. So I always think of the, the next generation of AI machines as, what I, as adaptable machines or tools that learn. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it's very much like when we give tools to animators. I think um, to people in factories and so on, what we need to do is give them tools that they can adjust and mm -hmm. adapt and sort of become much more productive so they don't have to um, you know, do all this sort of low-level coding mm -hmm. uh, in order to, or change hardware, etc., in order to deal with the fact that maybe the the lids of the water bottles have changed in size. Right, right. So when we're learning as, as humans, one of the things that we get to take advantage of is this relatively vast amount of quote-unquote common sense mm -hmm. um, that I guess you can kind of think of as like transfer learning in a sense. Yeah. Uh, in the context of few-shot learning, is there... Uh, in, in your research in particular, is there a starting place? Is there some base that, you know, we've taught the, the agent via, you know, you tell me, um, or are we just starting from scratch with a few examples and saying, go figure this out? Like, what, what's the base? Yeah, so, so you're absolutely right. Trans is very important. So um, I would probably need to unpack what I mean by few shot my learning. Okay. So few shot, I mean, it has to learn from few data. Uh-huh. Um, and then meta-learning is, there's this assumption that there's gonna, the learning is going to happen at least in two phases. There's going to be a very expensive phase, which involves many tasks. We mm. want to build machines that can do many things, not okay. one thing. So we train it to do many things. Mm -hmm. And there's different ways to do this. So, but we, can, we should be thinking about this as evolution. And evolution leads to what some people call priors. You know, mm -hmm. it's an initial state in your brain. When you're born, you're born with a faculty okay. of language. Um, you, you start with some sort of prior. Um, there's still a lot of discussion on how to best do meta-learning in practice. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so there is this long process. And then there is also another process, which is the fast learning, which just with a few data, um, you should be able to learn to do something new with new objects or with new behaviors. Um, so this is very important for robotics because um, unlike simulation, robots cannot afford to do or to repeat a task um, <laughs> right. uh, you know, a trillion times until they get it right. right. And so it's important that they learn rapidly. So the name of the game then is maximize generalization while minimizing the amount of time needed to learn. Um, in which of the two phases or both? In, Actually, in both phases, right. but in, in particularly in the second, the second phase, you sort of assume that you will be given very few data, mm -hmm. and you will have very little compute power, mm -hmm. and you will have to come up with a solution, right, um, very quickly. 
And of course, if you haven't in the first phase constructed a, um, a representation that allows for abstraction so that you can go to, so, so you can sort of easily move to new tasks, mm -hmm. um, then this is not going to work. Right. So it's important that whatever representation you come up with, um, that there be sort of these, uh, um, in causality, people call this, uh, like Bernard Sholkov and uh, recently Professor Yosha Bendihir Material, they call this sort of the independent mechanisms. Mm. Um, we, we also often refer to this as concepts, uh, mm -hmm. abstractions. Mm -hmm. And so by having these uh, concepts, abstractions, or programs, um, I did some work uh, before on something called neural program interpreters that I'm so very excited about, which is mm. trying to understand um, these modular components uh, of things in the world, like uh, behaviors, programs, objects, and so on. Um, so if we have that, and it's, and at the same time, we don't want to hard code this. We want to learn this. Mm -hmm. um, so th th I think that's important. Um, then we have some much more hope that we will be able to generalize to novel objects and so on. So we'll be able to reuse some of the knowledge. So we'll, we'll know um, if we had knowledge, for example, of physics, then whether this new task involves dropping something, then it doesn't matter wh whether it's an apple or a watermelon or, mm -hmm. <laughs> or a piece of chalk. If you open your hand, it will drop. Mm -hmm. You can predict it because you have an understanding of the laws of, at least at an intuitive level, you understand the laws of physics. Mm -hmm. So we need to, we definitely need abstraction. So it's few shot meta learning, but in order to get generalization, we need uh, abstraction. We need to have a causal understanding of the mechanisms um, in the world. Kind of taking a step back, we've got few shot, meta learning, imitation. All of these are part of, uh, you know, they're, they're brought together to try to solve this problem. Is, is meta learning kind of like the core challenge? And if you figure that out, then the other two are easy, or do they each kind of contribute their own unique challenges to the overall uh, picture? I think. They're all different perspectives of looking at the same problem, which is like, well, how does the brain do it? Um, okay. So the meta-learning perspective is very useful, but of course, um, it still leaves open the question of how do we choose the representation? Mm -hmm. um, like, and likewise, we do some reinforcement learning when we do imitation sometimes. Sometimes we do supervised learning. But um, whether you do reinforcement learning, supervised learning, or or whether you choose to think about problems in terms of reinforcement learning and off-policy learning, or you, or you instead choose to think about them in terms of causality and counterfactuals, um, it's kind of a, it's a matter of taste. It mm -hmm. still leaves the question of what are the representations. Mm -hmm. So we still have to figure out what are these sort of independent representations and how to combine them mm -hmm. in order to solve tasks. Um, so I think all these different perspectives on the problem are very useful. Um, the multi-agent perspective is also very useful because uh, the most interesting thing at NeurIPS is not like the objects around, it's the people. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, people are the most interesting in our environment. A lot of these abstractions that I'm talking about, they're only possible with people. Um, we can talk about a podcast because uh, even though podcasts are things that, or perhaps a better example is we can think about today, Wednesday, Mm -hmm. There's no such a thing as Wednesday in the world. Wednesday is a right. construct <laughs> of our minds. It's, a, it's an abstraction that we humans find useful to communicate. And so, so eventually we do need the multi-agent perspective. 
Um, and another sort of thing that sort of comes into this, that's sort of uh, important in third-person imitation is I'm able to, say, observe you and you have a slightly different body than mine, um, but and and I, I have this sort of third-person view of you. So I'm looking at you and I can see your whole body and parts of your body that you can't see. Um, I also have my own sort of perspective and I, I know what I'm feeling, for example, in my fingers and I know how <laughs> cold this room is. And I... Apologies. And <laughs> no worries. Um, so the interesting thing is that um, I, so if you think of, I have a third person of view of you and I have a mm -hmm. first person view of me. Mm -hmm. And through that, I can have a first person view of you. So I can more or less predict how you're finding the temperature in the room. I can probably predict what you're feeling in your fingers right now. And at the same time, I can also do the third person view of me. I can sort of step out of my head and imagine me sitting here in this chair <laughs> ranting at you. And um, so we then end up with this two by two matrix. Uh, and, and eventually, uh, I think this being able to sort of step outside of my mind and to know that it's me here talking mm -hmm. to you. Mm -hmm. and to be aware of that, I think it's very profound. And uh, as part of understanding what is intelligence and how, how do our brains work. Because mm -hmm. um, this is about knowing how I relate to the world. Uh, how do I know what I know? Mm -hmm. It's to know what I don't know, to know what I don't know. It's, uh, we're getting to <laughs> the, this question of awareness, to be aware of your knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, it's something none of our machines um, have at present kind of done. Mm -hmm. And, and I mean, it, in fact, if we go in this direction, we are not too far from, dare I say, um, having a stab at understanding consciousness. Mm -hmm. Because that's, to, uh, to some extent, and not in a metaphysical sense, but to a computational, uh, we're moving toward a computational definition of consciousness here. Um, and there's a few scientists uh, working, say, on attention schema theories and so on, um, that are starting to actually believe that, that this it might be possible for us to start talking about. We already talk about, like, um, like for example, um, a neural network policy with RNN. The internal state is a subjective state. And some of the work that I've already done uh, with uh, Misha Daniel, one of the researchers I collaborate with, shows that the models have an internal representation of the world, even after they've are no longer in the presence of that world. You know, sort of, if they mm. touch an object and the hand lifts, even a while later, uh, there's still a memory of the shape of that object in the, in the internal representation of the recurrent neural network. And so if we go one step further to there being awareness in that neural network of what it knows, mm. Uh, that it that it knows that there was this object and it had a representation. When we start combining this with um, you know with abstractions, with counterfactual thinking, and so on, I think we are getting very close to intelligence. The problem is we still don't know how to get um, these abstractions um, in order to be able to do third-person imitation and in order to um, be able to get good awareness models of the world. So when you're pursuing a, a line of research like the third-person imitation learning, can you walk us through 
you know, the, the various phases of a project like that? How does it evolve? So this one in particular, it's, it's fun. You go collect videos of Atari and YouTube. Uh-huh. And because the first thing you need is data. Yeah. Um, so one initial state is coming up with representations that whether it's the video in YouTube or whether it's the, you know, the video that you can generate by playing the game in your own emulator mm-hmm. in the lab, um, uh, the representations in both domains are such that they, that they are equivalent. So we call this sort of self super. Um, so one of um, my collaborators. Which are the two that are equivalent? Uh, the representation. So it's just you, the idea is to build neural networks mm-hmm. that will, uh, whether, whether they look at a YouTube video or uh, the actual video in the emulator that I have, they will mm. produce similar representations. Okay. So the question is how do we train this? Because we won't have super, we don't have supervision and it's not an RL problem. Um, it's something that we're now referring to as self-supervision. Okay. And so my one of my collaborators, Yusuf Aitar, uh, went uh, to the YouTube videos and he came up with a technique um, that's a contrastive learning mm-hmm. and that allows us to be able to learn these representations. So as he, for example, tries to predict whether um, a a video frame appears um, before or after a, a recent video frame, or it tries to classify how many steps ahead is one segment of video from another segment, okay. or whether um, the audio, which uh, is an important part of Atari that we never get to see mm. much of, whether the audio signal cor- um, uh, happens at the same time or not as mm-hmm. the video signal. And through, and through just these very basic checks, you can sort of formulate a, you know, training labels, essentially, and you can train a neural network. Mm-hmm. Um, the typical techniques that we use there, are the sort of contrasting what is right versus what is wrong, um, is basically what we call contrastive learning, or in, and there's been many techniques for doing this, max margin, maximum mm-hmm. likelihood, in fact, is a form of doing this. Um, and... In fact, this is what kind of led to also GANs, was that this kind of research of being able to sort of try to have a classifier that is telling you what's sort of real, what's not real. So you you've collected the video, and I'm still uh, not very clear on the, okay. the so two representations. Right. The, so one representation is the one you've built up from the YouTube videos. What's yeah. the other? So we, because we're using videos of that are very different for with different players with different. Uh, I know the, the different sort of all the videos will all have different appearance, mm-hmm. um, but we through learning the representations like this, we're able to get an um, to embed the videos into vectors okay. that are the same for all different variations of the video. And once you have and such an embedding, embedding on a frame by frame basis, or uh, segment, or entire video, or something else. It, Typically on a frame-by-frame basis, okay. but you could sort of do this also, um, conceivably you could do, try to do this over sequences also. Okay. Um, and with this, now you essentially, now if you have a trajectory in YouTube, now you can map this to a trajectory in latent space, in the sort of embedding space. Mm-hmm. Um, and now this is essentially the trajectory that you need to follow when you play Atari. So then we use this trajectory as a reward signal and then we just do reinforcement learning um, and, and here Toby Pfaff, my, uh, <laughs> uh, the other collaborator, just went and tried a, a couple of reinforcement learning agents and then it sort of learns to 
it's using the trajectory as uh, the reward signal mm -hmm. and it tries to follow it by taking actions in the game. So, so essentially all we've done is we've used the data that we observe in the world, solving the task in a slightly different setting. Um, we call it with a domain gap. Mm -hmm. and, and we've... Um, we first learn the features, and then once we have those features, we can use those features to construct a reward function, and then we just try and just maximize uh, the discounted sum of uh, returns in order to solve the game. Okay. You mentioned that the videos that you come across have you know different levels of quality, and uh, I thought you said something like different you know colors or or levels uh, of noise correct. or whatever. Do you? Do you do any pre-processing like domain adaptation or uh, anything to augment the, the data in some way? Yes. Yeah, so, so in effect, the self-supervised learning is a form of uh, domain adaptation. That's okay. what we're, we're trying to find features that are sort of uh, common for all these domains. Mm -hmm. um, in, in, in Atari, the gap, the domain gap is not that big. Yeah. So it's somewhat easy for us be... to do some processing of the video scale and so on. Okay. Um, what we will need to do is really address, and there's been a few papers, but this is still, I think, largely an unsolved problem, is be able to just watch a few videos of uh, someone in YouTube doing something like pouring liquids uh, and, and then be able to get a robot, whether in simulation or real robot, to also pour liquids. Mm -hmm. Um, that is very hard to do mm -hmm. um, and in, in terms of mapping human hands to robot hands doing the task. Um, there's a few nice efforts recently. Um, Chelsea Finn has done some good work in this. We, we've sort of been looking at this as well. Um, OpenAI has also some works. Um, but I think we still have a long way to go before solving the problem. Mm -hmm. And so what's your sense for what the next step is, the next piece of that puzzle? Um, so I, I think it's one of the things that I'm going to be betting on will be through coming up with uh, uh, better representations. Mm -hmm. um, and currently there's two sort of hypotheses here. One is just make the networks bigger. Right. And... Um, so the big networks is something we explored recently on um, a, a, a paper that we actually uh, just put on archive recently uh, with an, an algorithm called Metamimic. Um, the mm. idea of Metamimic is it closely um, imitates um, the, a demonstration. Like uh, mm -hmm. we in fact call this high fidelity imitation. So you're trying to do something precisely like a human would do. Okay. So. Um, and the idea is we're going to learn to f do what humans do precisely for many, many tasks. Mm -hmm. um, so far, we have only done it for one task with variation in the task, but the intention is to do this for many tasks. If you can learn um, to do one-shot imitation, sort of imitate many tasks, then at test time, we show a new task with new objects, and then you check whether we can still imitate. Mm -hmm. So we, we've, in effect, test generalization. Now, what we found when doing when training Metamimic is we had to keep the net, making the networks bigger in order to improve generalization on the test set. Uh, typically, RL researchers uh, haven't focused much on uh, generalization, and, and that, mm -hmm. this has changed recently. 
over the last few years and um, I'm actually glad to see our colleagues all sort of embracing um, these generalization tests. And what we're finding is here it becomes really important to make the networks big. Um, however, we didn't know whether we could train the mass of networks that we trained for perception for things like vision and so on mm -hmm. to also do control. But in, in this work, we found out that it is indeed possible. If you have enough sort of these demonstrations, it's possible to train, um, like in our work is the largest ever trained neural networks to do um, RL um, and by orders of magnitude larger than any pre-existing network. Most of what we did before with Atari and so on usually was with two layers neural networks. Okay. And in fact, uh, Professor Imo Todorov even complained about this and, uh, <laughs> at one stage. I think if we are going to be doing control from pixels, um, or in, from pixels and ego, ego motion and, uh, and so on, it's, um, it's very important to use large network architectures and to learn how to model um, them properly and how to, uh, to train them. Um, so the reason why we chose to go this way with Metamimic is because if you observe um, children, um, when humans are solving a task, um, if they introduce irrelevant steps in between, uh, children will solve the task, but they will also do the irrelevant uh, tasks. Mm. Um, whereas a few experiments have shown that, uh, I think with uh, chimpanzees and vulnerables, that they, they will go and solve the task immediately. They will not do the irrelevant steps. Okay. So humans have this propensity to over what uh, psychologists call over-imitate. Okay. Um, and essentially, this is the strategy we're following with MetaMimic. So build a very big network that will imitate precisely hmm. um, millions of things. Okay. And that will allow it to sort of build into this model the capacity uh, to, when shown a new thing that it had not seen before, it can just from one single demonstration uh, repeat hmm. what has been done. Okay. Um, we also found that these models can also be further trained with RL to solve tasks more efficiently. So that's one way to go okay. that I'm going to explore. Just very big networks. And of course, there's a lot of engineering that goes into big networks. We have to put a lot of thinking into normalization and so on. Mm -hmm. So it's not, when we say big networks, um, it should not be understood that this is brute force engineering. Uh, on the other hand, uh, one requires very precise engineering in order to train these big networks. Okay. Um, this certainly has been my experience with some of our work in liberating, as well as some of uh, this brilliant work that DeepMind has put out on um, big GANs and using GANs as generative models recently. Um, on the other hand, I also want to sort of come up with the representations that are more compositional. So that's like the neural programming interpreters work that I did with Scott Reed uh, mm -hmm. a few years ago. And that some folks like in Stanford, like folks in Stanford have used to build things like neural task programmers uh, mm. that are able to actually do very sophisticated control um, just by exploiting modularity, uh, sort of program modularity. Um, as well as to, you know, sort of being able to break tasks into subtasks and so on. Yeah, that's going to be a continued effort. Um, I think I'm also thinking that in terms of building um, many causal models, many small modules mm -hmm. that you can then combine. And if the small modules are doing the right thing and they have a good understanding, 
of, uh, I mean, a good understanding in the sense that they're causal representations of world. And so, but by combining uh, them under, in ways which we still have to devise, okay. <laughs> uh, we should be able to get much larger models that can still represent the world and, um, and, you know, and be able to generalize much better because these models will be compositional. They, they will be able to have this combinatorial reuse of the components. Mm-hmm. Hmm. When you describe the first of those two directions, building out these much bigger networks, um, one of you may reference to kind of staying in the pixel domain. Uh, do you see efforts to other, what are the alternative approaches that are being explored, uh, if any? There's two different philosophies. There is the learning from scratch philosophy uh-huh. <laughs> that tries to learn just from pixels. Yeah. Um, and I often find too much from just pixels. Um, okay. you, in fact, if you're doing grasping and so on, it's important that you don't just have a monocular image, but you have stereo. Or, okay. um, so depth is a very important cue in order to grab things. And mm-hmm. you just have to try to grab things from a single video, monocular video, to, to see how hard it is even for humans to mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. There's, of course, touch uh, haptics mm-hmm. and there's the you know the fact that we have little hairs in our ear that allow us to know mm-hmm. the accelerations of our head and so on so we mm-hmm. have a lot of internal gyroscopic information i guess i'm curious um, less about kind of multi-sensory and more uh, is there a direction to you know i think the weights and activations in these networks kind of form concepts but we don't necessarily force them to form concepts that are meaningful to us or abstract in any way. And I, I'm, I'm curious if that is a direction that people are pursuing. Yeah, Does that make sense? Indeed. So, so it's indeed, there's two orthogonal yeah. things here. One is to sort of indeed uh, go for multi-sensory perception right. and then learn these networks to uh, conduct actions. Um, and this still is the big open question. Like for example, in robotics, we uh, like these competitions with flying drones Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, that's an easy problem because the drone um, doesn't uh, have to touch anything. So, <laughs> right. so there's no contact forces. So this should be an easy control. It's an easy control problem if you know the state of the world. Mm-hmm. What makes it hard is that they have to do this. If they, ha- if they have to do this from pixels, navigate from pixels, and if there's people in the background that are moving and lighting changes and so on, this, then it becomes yeah. incredibly hard and it's still by far an, uh, an open problem. So mm. perception has not been solved. Right. <laughs> and that's essentially what this tells us. Or perhaps we're not using the right sensors. We should, uh, and so on. Mm-hmm. Now, the, um, the other side of this, of, uh, the argument is also what other folks are doing is they're sort of saying, we shouldn't be learning from scratch all the time. You should, fact, in fact, use that we have already learned some modules, uh, some perceptual modules or some action modules, some controllers, mm-hmm. and sort of learn to reuse the components. Um, and, and that indeed, I think, is a very promising area. If you, um, certainly if you've learned uh, controllers uh, to achieve a task, it's possible to reuse them. And here controllers, you can think of them as also like sub-programs, and we can combine them. Mm-hmm. Um, what we haven't done well yet is being able to learn a representation of something like uh, an object and then being able to uh, exploit it, uh, that representation, keep it in new, uh, f- uh, be able to 
harness it for future to build future representation to right. augment to keep learning continually more and more complex representations mm -hmm. and be able to manipulate to be able to manipulate those objects um, that is still an open problem we don't quite know how to build uh, these type of model architectures mm -hmm. and there's two philosophies there's people who try to model this by um, learning everything from scratch mm -hmm. and then there's people who of course try to inject much more domain knowledge and they argue with each other as to who is right, right. <laughs> um, but um, we've seen a lot of these debates in yeah. Twitter especially um, but I think uh, the verdict is still open it's good that there's different perspectives on mm -hmm. this well Nando any uh, advice or words of wisdom or pointers for folks that are interested in kind of digging in a little bit deeper into this area or closing um, thoughts I guess come to <laughs> come to New Rips and I clear and then it's sort of uh, get get to know watch this podcast <laughs> listen to it and um, there's also brilliant courses online like Andrewing and so on so you mm -hmm. where you can sort of get into this sort of material and get a much better understanding of, of the material um, we also organize summer schools um, we as in many researchers um, mm -hmm. volunteer throughout the year to teach summer schools. Um, all over the world, so here in Canada through the CIFA program. Um, lately, I've been involved with teaching a summer school in Africa called the Deep Learning in DAPA, mm -hmm. uh, which is a great initiative because, um, and I think that is a parting thought that I want to bring into this. Mm -hmm. um, AI is a set of very powerful techniques. Um, AI will be very influential in our world, not just the tech world, but AI will shape politics. AI will shape our economies and so on. It is essential. It is of paramount importance that everyone has access to AI. If currently there is very strong biases, um, uh, women are underrepresented in AI. Um, there's a huge underrepresentation of certain races in AI, of certain continents in AI. And we need to address the, these unbalances. We need to address them for two reasons. One, we want to build tools that are fair. Um, we want to make sure that AI is for all of us, not just for the few. Um, and the other reason is because um, some of the people that have been marginalized for, from this actually have a lot to contribute. We often look at Africa as the, there's this wall as, that hasn't participated in the machine learning conferences. Um, this year at NIPS, we have um, at least two papers that I know of uh, that came from Africa. So by helping a bit, going and volunteering there, um, we can sort of start reaping the benefits of um, their contributions. Mm -hmm. And um, there's lots of things that came from Africa. Gaussian processes were invented at my university hmm. by Professor Craig, and it used to be called Krigging. Um, EC2, uh, if you actually look at the yeah. history of AWS, um, Africa played a big role in it. You know, this is where people in uh, South Africa working on this mm -hmm. that um, have given us the infrastructure that now pretty much holds all the data from all banks and nation states and so on. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it's important um, to also address the problems in Africa that we haven't even thought about because we haven't gone there. Um, things like translation. In South Africa, there's 11 official languages. Mm -hmm. In other countries in Africa, there's like 50 languages. 
Uh, when people uh, tweet, they use, usually use three languages mixed. <laughs> so translation mm. is a huge problem. And um, so when you go there, you, you learn this and then you realize, oh, it's important to sort of start working more on unsupervised machine translation and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there's also other problems. Like one, and I'm really going off track here. <laughs> this is a very long, <laughs> I apologize for having gone this long. Another problem that I thought was very interesting in going to Africa two years ago was when I learned about Mom Connect. Uh, so with Mom Connect, um, moms essentially get enrolled when they go to hospitals mm-hmm. um, um, into this uh, messaging service. And throughout Africa, people use these very cheap old phones that we used to have here. Um, and they can still text and communicate quite efficiently. Mm-hmm. In fact, the, the service plans are not as expensive as here in Canada. <laughs> so, so in many ways, they have leapfrogged our inefficiencies. Mm-hmm. And what they can do is that the doctors can send them messages, reminders of what to do after the child is born and so on. And they can also, um, if they have questions, they can text the doctors. So, for example, they could text the doctor, and this is like an example of what happens. Like, I've given water to my child uh, all day and all night, but the child keeps throwing up the the water. Mm -hmm. Um, At that stage, the doctor can simply say, boil the water, Mm. um, provide a sort of basic advice that will save a life. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, most if we want to have a huge contribution to the health of people on our planet, those little things are the things that sort of matter the most and you can learn about them when you go and include people from other uh, communities Mm. Uh, and then you see the wonderful things they've already done to address this problem so they actually can contribute a lot of insights into Mm -hmm. um, the development of um, you know machine learning tools well nando thanks so much for taking the time to chat it's great to get to speak with you Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.